Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, the ministry of Jesus is for sinners. That's what Jesus says. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And what he means when he says this is that he has come to find and redeem sinners. And we see this continually throughout his ministry as Jesus had mercy on the sinful. We have Zacchaeus, that tax collector who diligently sought after Jesus. We have the woman at the well in John chapter 6 who had been with five husbands and was at that moment living in fornication. We could also bring up Levi or Mary Magdalene or the woman caught up in adultery. We even have St. Paul. And the thing to note about how Jesus brings this forgiveness, he never brings forgiveness by ignoring people's sin. He brings those sins up. He accuses Saul of persecuting his church. He tells the woman at the well exactly what brought shame to her life. He calls Levi, the tax collector, away from his sin and into a life of discipleship. He calls these people to repentance and faith so that they no longer dwell in their sins, but rather that they dwell in the mercy of Jesus, who is their Savior. Even those who cry out, crucify him, on the day of Good Friday, Jesus rebukes, calls to repentance, and then later cries, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus knows how to forgive. Jesus knows how to lead people to forgiveness. And this is important because Jesus needs and wants people to see their need for mercy. And so he exposes their sin. He shines a great big light upon it so that there's no excuse and there's no way out. He allows people to notice and see their sins. He allows them to feel the pain of their sins, to struggle with the weight of their sin upon their heart and upon their conscience, and experience the pain and the suffering that their sins bring to them. And then to free them of their sins, through the mercy of his cross, he proclaims who he is and what he does. In this way, we Christians often fail to understand what the forgiveness of sins is. From the way that we deal with the world and the sins that exist in it, it often seems that we believe the best way to deal with sin is to ignore it or accept it. We attract people to the gospel, or we think we can attract people to the gospel, by being nice. Never challenging people's choices and behaviors, and never bringing up their sins at all. We simply expect the world to hear the gospel and delight in it because, hey, I was nice to them once. This is the religious attitude that the churches of the world often bear. We simply need to be nice. We simply need people to think of us as peaceable and kind. And then people will flock to our churches. And that message of kindness has morphed into a message of blind acceptance. And so that gospel of forgiveness has really become a completely different gospel. It's become a gospel of niceness, a gospel of inclusion, 
It's no longer about the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, but it's the social message that we're told we must accept to be nice. And so, what do we have in Porterville this last week? We have the ELCA congregation in Porterville hosting their pride fair. Here, sins are not condemned to be forgiven, but they're celebrated as an identity. Shameful. This in itself is a sin against the Holy Spirit of God. It is a denial of the work of God's Holy Spirit. Yet we in the LCMS, we suffer from the same ideas and weaknesses, just to a lesser degree sometimes. When parents refuse to teach their children the faith, when they refuse to chastise their adult children for their abysmal church attendance, when pastors fail to shepherd the flock by not calling on the inactive, I am a sinner, while ignoring the blatant and well-known sins that exist within a congregation, this helps no one. The false gospel of niceness. The false gospel of appearing pleasant to the world ends up depriving people of the true gospel. The gospel of forgiveness of sins. And that's not the way that Jesus says this is supposed to work. When Jesus describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit to apostle, his apostles, he says this. He says the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe. Concerning righteousness because he goes to the Father and we will no longer see him. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. How does the Holy Spirit bring about repentance and faith? He convicts the world. He causes people to see their sins. He opens their eyes to know their sin and feel the pain that it causes. And in this, they will rejoice in hearing the gospel when it relieves them. How does the Holy Spirit work this conviction of the heart? Well, it's through the preaching of the Christian church. It is in the realization that God's love helps poor sinners for Jesus' sake. And that's the image we're given today in our gospel lesson. At the beginning of Luke chapter 15, the part of the gospel lesson we weren't able to read this morning, Jesus is being criticized for dwelling and eating with tax collectors and sinners. What he is likely doing with the tax collectors and sinners isn't blindly saying, come hang out with me, it'll be fun. Rather, he's bringing them to repentance and then the forgiveness of sins in the gospel. This is the content of what Jesus preached from the very beginning, even back in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He preaches the gospel of repentance. And so now these poor sinners have been convicted in their hearts of their sin. And what's happening? They're being received into the kingdom of Christ as those who are forgiven by Jesus. This is the way it should be. Jesus has convicted their hearts and their consciences by proclaiming the fullness of his word, and then he comforts them with the forgiveness of sins. That's what we receive. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't understand. They grumble against Jesus. And so Jesus tells them the parables of the lost. We, we have the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And our focus today is primarily on the lost son. And here, here we have a loving father. He was a man of means, and he has two sons. 
Yet these two sons do not understand their father's love for them. Neither of them really get it. The youngest despises his father. He cannot stand living in his father's house. He has no love for his father's presence. He only sees the wealth that his father has, and he thinks that's all he needs. He demands it. He says, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he's essentially saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now, and then I can at least pretend that you are dead and live on my own terms. And then he goes off into another country as far from his father as he can get. And he squanders all his father gave to him. That sounds like our sinful flesh to a T. The things of God are irritating. The things of God make us restless. The things of God need to be fled from. What's generally surprising about this, though, is that his father acquiesced to his painful request. Yet that's exactly how God treats us. Here this young man had a loving father. He had a home. He had a family. He had work. He had a life. He was provided for. He was loved. But he didn't care for these things. All he wanted was the money and the freedom. That was much better in his eyes than a father and all that his father offered. And so the father gives it to him. Not to be nice. Not because he was some sort of pushover who caved into every one of his spoiled son's demands either. He wanted his son to see. He says, you love your money? You love your freedom from this house more than me? Well, let's see where it leads you. And he hands his son over to his own desires so that he can see what pain and sorrow they will inflict upon him. He gives his son the share of the property to discipline him and to demonstrate what kind of love he has for him so that in the hope against hope, he will bring his son back with a renewed understanding of the love that he has. And God has behaved this way since the very beginning. You know, we remember from our catechism, we are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We are expected, or we are to expect at least, the greatest good, help, comfort, and joy to come from God. Yet we often create and build other gods for ourselves, and so often... God hands man over to these gods that they build for themselves so that we can see how futile and feeble they are. Then we can see how sinful we were in placing all of our trust and hope in them. We see this happen in the Old Testament all the time as the people of Israel rash after the idols to the nations time and time again. They, they decide that they're going to stop praying to the Lord and they start praying to their Baals or their Asherahs or their Chemoshes or their Molechs or all the other idols of the nations around them. And what does God do? He leaves them to their false gods. He says, you want Baal to provide for you? You want Asherah to protect you? You want Chemosh to comfort you? Well, here you go. Let's see what happens. And what flows from this is a conquest from a foreign nation, a drought, a famine, an earthquake, a civil war, a sudden destruction. He shows them how much they truly need him and how powerless their idols are to help them. 
And he reveals the sin of their idolatry and the suffering that that sin brings upon them as he calls them to help them back. He calls them back into his embrace. He comforts them. He delivers them from the destruction that falls in upon them. And he forgives their sins and assures them of his enduring love and promises. We see this play very out, play out very well in our world today. As we see people put their hope in the economy, people put their hope in the love of money, they, people put their hope in blind pleasure, we see people put their hope in their political affiliations, only to see those things crumble apart in the world around us time and time again. Because these things do not save us. And we see this play out very clearly in the parable of the lost son. As expected, he squanders the money in reckless living. Famine comes into the land that he's living in. He has nothing, and he's forced to feed the pigs, longing for the slop that they are fed. This is the lowest of the low, as you can think of it, for people of the scriptures. He sees his sin, and he's convicted. And he decides he will return to his father. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he left his father in pride. He left his father in sinful hatred, but now he returns in humility, seeking mercy. And mercy is what he finds. This is the love that the father wanted him to see from the beginning. As the father rushes to welcome his son home, before the son can even get a word out, the father runs to him and embraces his child as he returns. The son says he's unworthy, which is true. Yet here we see the love of the father was never based upon worthiness. It was simply based on the love that he had for his son. And even as the son is confessing his sin and seeking to be made a servant, the father calling for robes and rings and shoes to be brought for his son, and he restores him. Immediately, he commands that a feast be held in celebration, the fattened calf be killed, because his son, who is dead, is now alive again. That is how quick God is in forgiving us as we humbly return to him from our sinful lives. As we're caused to see what pain and destruction our sins work, as the Spirit of God convicts our hearts and our consciences so that we know how far we've fallen and failed, as we are made to see how gracious and wonderfully merciful our God is, we neither deserve His mercy nor His care. We are not worthy of the love that He bears for us in blessing us with life and all that supports it. And we cannot dare to count ourselves as deserving of what he provides for us in giving Christ to die for our sins. We deserve none of it. Yet that's exactly what he's eager to give. Just look at the life and the worship of the church as we gather here today. What does all revolve around? The forgiveness of sins we have in Jesus. We begin our worship service and remember of our baptism. We're washed in the name of the triune God, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to a pure conscience before God. 
We confess our sins and immediately we hear the comforting words of the holy absolution in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We then go on to sing, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us, and in immediate response, we sing the Gloria and Excelsis, where we praise God for sending Christ to take away the sins of the world. We hear the word of God read and preached for our instruction and our comfort. We eat and drink the body and blood of our Lord as it's given and shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We come as poor, miserable, sinful beggars before God, and we are blessed as sons of God. And that's what we are. We're sons, welcomed home. As the scripture teaches, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons of God, and so we are. We are children of our Heavenly Father. And as children of God, we are also heirs of the kingdom of God. It says in Romans, the Spirit in himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Then we are God's children. If we are God's heirs, we should never neglect to come to him. We should never neglect rejoicing in his gifts of mercy and delighting in the love that he has for us. So often we see people that harden themselves against this love. As they dwell in misery and sin and they simply cannot believe that God is good enough or kind enough to make his grace and mercy be for them. They see their evil and the evil around them, and they foolishly blame God for all of it. And rather than recognize their suffering as a product of their own sin and the sins of others in this terrible fallen world, they shake their fist at God. They view him as cruel and merciless, and they are deceived into finding relief in the very things that were making them miserable in the first place. And so what, does the do? What, what happens? The addict, he clings to his addiction. The hopeless continue to hope and hopeless things, multiplying their misery. But this is not how God would have us see him. It's not how God would have us live. He's revealed his mercy in sending his son into the world to seek and save sinners. God would have us view him as gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. As the scriptures say, in this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. We see this in how the father welcomes his son home how merciful he is, how much he rejoices to forgive his penitent and broken-hearted son. He prepares a feast and celebrates that what was lost is now found. Jesus says of the lost coin that was found, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God celebrates with all the host of heaven over the forgiveness of one sinner. One sinner who turns from his sins drives heaven into a magnificent and joyful frenzy. 
That's how God views you today as you hear his word and rejoice in the gifts he gives you. If there are times when we don't celebrate such simple, beautiful things, and we see this in the elder son, as the younger son didn't see his father as merciful and loving and kind, neither did the elder son. He grew angry when he saw the celebration for his brother, and this is because he failed to understand one enduring reality. He was just as unworthy of his father's love as the other brother was. He did not fully understand the love of his father. He says, hey, look, Dad, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your commands, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. That's not fair. But when this miserable son of yours comes, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He viewed his father's joy as something that had to be earned rather than something that was freely given by the grace and love of his father. He viewed it as a commodity to be earned. This is the issue Jesus had with the Pharisees. They were angry that Jesus ate with and received sinners. And rather than rejoice with all the hosts of heaven, what do they do? They grumble against Jesus for showing mercy. God has joy in the forgiveness of sins. God delights in saving sinners from hell. And what's sad, according to our own sinful flesh, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we want those wretched sinners as far away from us as possible. We want those weak Christians to go somewhere else. And why? We feel that we deserve more or better than they do. But take note. The fattened calf was not denied to the elder son. He was welcomed by his father to come and celebrate. What was for the lost son was also for the elder son. The love of the father and the love that the father had given to his lost son was also available to the older one. He too was invited to repent. He too was invited to delight in the good gifts and the joy and love of his father. Both sons needed the father's mercy and that is exactly what the father was willing to give to them so even here we must remember this no how no matter how sinful we think everyone else has been we are also in the need of grace of god and that's why we're here today we're here today because we are sinners we are in church crying out to god for mercy because mercy is what we need no matter how heinous and horrible we think everybody else in the world may be, we're no better. So often people get mad and offended by something at the church. There seems to be someone else's sin or weakness and it causes someone else to be upset. So they choose not to come to church because of that person's sin. They forget their own sin and their own need for God's mercy. And that's what happens to the elder brother. Here... The older brother was so preoccupied with his brother's sin that he overlooked his own. And it made him bitter. Don't be bitter. Because this is sad. And it happens all the time. That, that one small offense spoken by someone at church. That one, one thing done thoughtlessly. Uh, that, that one thing out of place. That one honor overlooked. Then a person's willing to flee from the church of God. And in this way, 
the elder brother becomes the lost brother. So we must remember what God says through his prophet Hosea. He says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God desires to be known as a merciful God. This is why he reveals himself to us in Christ. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, has given himself for you. And that means he takes away your sin, your real sins. Not your made-up sins, your real sins. And so like the lost son, repent. Trust in this merciful God who loves you and welcomes you as his child through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is quick to forgive. He delights in welcoming you home. And this is the great wonder of how quick God is to forgive. He sends Jesus to die while we're still sinners. And it says in Romans, God shows his love for us that and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so if Christ dies for us while we are still possessed and engrossed in our own sins, let us flee to him. Let us seek the forgiveness that is offered to us. Let us come running to his mercy that is found in Jesus alone. And let's leave the sin with the pigs and their pots. Let's leave the sin in the foreign country that we fled to away from our Father. And let's come to the God who rejoices in welcoming us home. For every sinner who repents, God rejoices. The host of heaven erupts in joyful glee. And so we repent all the more. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts to be humbled so that we see our sins and our own fault. Yet we also ask that we, you cause us to know and delight in your mercy. Convict our hearts with your Holy Spirit so that we see no other option than to turn to you and be saved. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting in the name of Jesus. Amen.